Good morning. I'm so glad that you have chosen First Baptist Belton as your place of worship this morning to our members and guests alike. My name is Jason Gish, and I serve as the mobilization pastor here at First Baptist Belton. Man, it's Christmas, y'all. <laughs> it's Christmas time. Thank you so much for worshiping so well. We have a risen Savior who came as a baby. And we get to worship him throughout this season. It's just, just a great, great time of the year. Before we continue our worship service, I have just a few things to share with you. I want to talk about our schedule. So next week is Christmas Eve. We will have two worship services. They are identical worship services. The first one is at 9 a.m. The second one is at 11 a.m. And you are invited to either or both. Bring your family, bring your friends, and enjoy uh, the Christmas Eve services. There'll be no Sunday school next week, by the way. Following that, uh, the next week is Christmas Eve, and we will have one, is, is New Year's Eve, and we will have one service, and it is at 10 a.m., and there'll be no Sunday school that week either. So this morning is the last chance you have to attend Sunday school the rest of this year. You need to go. So after the worship service, attend Sunday school and then you'll be able to return to Sunday School on January 7th. Now, uh, let me talk to our members for just a moment. Uh, Year-end giving. It's the end of the year. If you wanna give, please give, please do so. We need you to give by December 31st. If you're gonna give through the mail, it needs to be postmarked by December 31st, okay? You got that? Now, about giving, I wanna mention our global mission offering. Uh, this is that time of year where we ramp up that, that final giving, so let me ask you to do that. The global mission offering goes uh, to missions in the state, missions in our nation, and missions around the world. So uh, give to the global mission offering. Um, you might have questions about the one fund. That one fund giving does not begin until January 1st. Hey, have you properly celebrated yet what the Lord did uh, through the One Fund? Why don't we do that one more time? Great what God has done. I've heard, I've heard words like miracle, amazing, incredible, only God could do that. And I think all of that is true. And so church, thank you for, thank you for being so faithful with the One Fund. But just know that that giving begins January first. So the month of December has been prayer for international missions. I want to pray right now as we continue our service and join with me as we pray for our missionaries and for uh, uh, the churches in our area and so forth. Lord, we, we love We thank you that you are our Lord. We thank you that we can celebrate you, uh, not what you do for us, but just you because of who you are. You are the Lord. And yes, as our Lord, you provide so much for us. Thank you for that. Lord, you know, you can see this whole world and you see all 8 billion people. And you know that over half of those people have never heard your name. They don't, they don't even know how to receive you. So, Lord, as Southern Baptists, you know, we have sent missionaries all around the world, and there's so many organizations that, 
that work with them or beside them all around the world so that people may know you, so they may at least hear your name. Lord, I pray for our missionaries to claim you every day. Lord, make their message clear. Lord, I pray that hearts would change. And as hearts change, I pray nations would change. And that that change would be toward you. That it would be in you. That it would be by you. That it would be because of you. Lord, we know that one day we will stand before you in heaven. There's going to be all kinds of people. There's going to be all kinds of people worshiping you. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be bowing down before you as Lord and King of the universe. We look forward to that day. But between that day and now, Lord, there's so much work to do. So, Lord, not even around the world, but locally, Lord, we pray for missions. We pray for those who are sharing the gospel. We pray, we pray for our fellow churches who are even worshiping this morning right now or in a couple of hours. Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified. We pray that your gospel would be proclaimed. We pray that the hearts of men and women and children here in Belton... Temple Academy, Salado, Moody, Rogers. Hearts will be turned to you. So, Lord, we think of you as our Savior, but we also think of you as the baby. The baby who came to bring peace. The baby who came that we could have peace with you. We could have peace with ourselves. We could have peace with others. We thank you that we can worship you this morning. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please, be, uh, please remain seated as we continue. We are going to sing a song that we sang last week um, now, and it's a super fun one. So I encourage you, as you start to get the hang of it, you can stand and worship with us. Oh, 
stand and worship with us?
And it burns through the night With songs of the angels now filling the sky Our hope has arrived Our hope has arrived The darkness starts running getting closer to Christmas when you get to experience silent night or silent morning, right? Yeah, good to see everybody. Y'all doing okay? Everybody alive, alert, or well? Had a good weekend? Who's ready for Christmas? Everybody got all the presents bought? Let me see hands. If you've got all your Christmas presents bought, let me see your hands. Hey, I want you to know that for me and my house, we're done. We're in a good place. All right, how many of you are looking forward to Christmas? 
How many of you are looking forward to family? Wow, look at you guys, all of y'all lying. At church. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's good to see everybody. I hope y'all are doing well. Hope you're looking forward to Christmas. I'm always looking forward to Christmas, especially when we uh, really consider what is Christmas about? What, when we really consider Christmas and all the bells and whistles and music and Christmas trees and lights and presents and family and all the things that make up what we know to be Christmas and we just pause for a minute and we think about the reason why we celebrate this season. It's not for the presents, although the presents are great. It's not for the lights, although the lights are beautiful. It's not for the songs, even though I love them. It's because our Savior has come to this earth. And that is something to celebrate. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40, we're going to be in verses 3 through 5 this morning. So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. So if you've read through the Bible, maybe you've done a reading plan, you've read through the Bible in a year. Um, man, Isaiah is a tough chapter to read, right? Isaiah, you can pick out some other books of the Bible that can kind of be a little tough to read, right? Um, but the book of Isaiah, if you were to nail it down into one sentence, what the book of Isaiah is about, it's, it's really about God prophesying a coming salvation for a rebellious people living in a broken and fragmented world. That's pretty much it. Like if you read it with that lens, it'll kind of make sense, right? God is using his prophet um, Isaiah to speak about a coming salvation to a rebellious people who are living in this broken, shattered, fragmented world. Now, let me give you a little bit of history, okay? So bear with me for a second because I'm going to wrap all this up and I'm going to make it make sense here in just a second. But remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about that in Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And a part of this covenant were three aspects, right? There was land, there were offspring, and then there were favor. There was blessing. And he said, I want to give these things to you. But not only do I want to give them to you, I'm also going to give them to your descendants as well. So this offspring that God has promised to Abraham are also going to receive the very promise that he gave to Abraham. And so we go all the way through the line of Abraham until we get to King David. King David's a very important figure. And God comes to King David and he reinitiates that covenant with King David. Only he extends it a bit. And, and what he says is, he says, hey, King David, there is not going to be, uh, there's always going to be someone from your line who sits on the throne of Israel. Right? So he makes this grand promise to David. And so this promise that was given to Abraham, now given to David, uh, there's never going to be a man who is from your line who's not sitting on the throne of Israel. He makes this bold promise. Now, by the time we get to Isaiah in his times, so that's about 740 B.C. Okay, So we've tracked through a lot of history. 740 B.C. The descendants of Abraham have become a little bit impatient with God. I know that's hard to believe. Are you, are you a person of patience? Well, neither were they. So you're in good company, right? They lose patience with God, with his timing, with his will. And quite frankly, they kind of lose trust 
in some of his promises, right? They've experienced a lot of suffering, a lot of heartache, and they know that a Savior is coming, but man, it sure doesn't feel like it. You ever feel that way? It's like, I know that the second coming is out there, but goodness gracious, Lord. Like, when is that day going to be? Well, Israel is not much different, right? They've lost a little bit of patience with the Lord. And so what they do is, rather than trusting him and giving themselves over to him and following his way, they start taking matters into their own hands. They start looking for rescue um, from themselves, right? I've got to get myself out of this bind. I've got to get myself out of this predicament that they find themselves in. And so they do it all they can to get them out of the pickle that they seem to find themselves in. But kind of like quicksand, and maybe you know this to be true from your own life, the more you try to work yourself out of the problems that you find yourself in, the harder it gets. Israel's the same way. They find themselves in political turmoil. They're now living under Assyrian rule, right? So God has taken them out of captivity in Egypt, you know, called them to himself, reinitiated a friendship and that beautiful love covenant with them. And what do they do? They go and blow it and they find themselves right back where they started in exile um, under Persian and Syrian rule. So they're faced with a very real question. The question is, is who are we going to trust for our rescue? Who are we going to look to to get us out of this mess that we found ourselves in? Who are we going to trust for our salvation? And it's in this moment of questioning who, what is going to get us out of this mess that Isaiah is speaking into the people of Israel. And here's what he says in chapter 40, verses three through five. He says, a voice is crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In this word of the Lord, Isaiah is using a figure of speech that we know of as hyperbole. Hyperbole is a helpful phrase or a helpful figure of speech, way of communicating, that has the ability to wake us up from the ordinary. In this particular case, Isaiah is trying to wake us up. He's trying to wake Israel up to a coming salvation, something that's, that's life-altering, that's, level, that, that's, that's ground-leveling, that's mountain-shaking. He's trying to wake the people of Israel up out of their stupor to see that God is not done with them, that there's a coming salvation. Now here's what's really cool. You and I get a perspective that the folks living in 740 BC don't have. Being on this side of history, we can see God's proclamation come to life in the arrival of a man named John the Baptist. John the Baptist shows up 700 years after this prophecy. So Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel in 740 BC. We see 700 years later that John the Baptist shows up and the people begin to question, who is this guy? It's kind of strange character, right? I mean, he's proclaiming a salvation. He's saying some kind of crazy things. People are getting baptized. He's developing a following. Who in the world is this man that we know of as John the Baptist. And thankfully, John identifies who he is. In chapter one, verse 23 of the book of John, here's what John records about John the Baptist. He says this, speaking of himself, this is John the Baptist speaking, 
John recording it. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Notice this. As the prophet Isaiah has said. So John is simply saying, hey, listen, I'm not the Savior, but I'm the one that Isaiah was prophesying 700 years ago about. I'm the one who's here today who's making a way for the coming of the king, the rescuer, the savior of Israel. I'm the guy pointing to the greater guy who's here to save a broken, fragmented world. Wow. Now, a couple days later, it's not very long after that, that we hear what John has to say of Jesus. John is busy baptizing some people in the river. He sees Jesus in a distance. And in verse 29 of chapter 1 in John, here's what he says of Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John has identified himself as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah who is now proclaiming a coming Savior. This Savior, John, has identified as the person that we know of as Jesus. Jesus. So, that's great. Cool. Now, what in the world does that mean for you and me living some 2,700 years after all this has happened? 2023, looking to the Christmas season, trying to figure out what Christmas is going to be like, whether or not we've got enough presents under the tree, wondering if I've got enough money in the bank to get through another year, wondering if my retirement account is going to hold up, wondering if my kids or what in the world is going to happen with my kids or family members. What in the world does all this have to do with me living in this broken world, which by the way, just watch the news and you will see the brokenness of the world around us. But I don't even think you would have to do that. Because I think if we were really honest this morning, if we were really honest, it wouldn't take you having to look at the news to see the brokenness of the world. I think all you have to do is look at your own life. I know for me, if I take an honest look at my life, I'm just not where I honestly would like to be. Right, I still have a little bit of road rage in me. You know, and I don't know why, but it seems like nobody works anymore. Right? Y'all tracking with me? I remember seven years ago, it took me five minutes to get to the other side of Belton. It takes me 15 now. I've become entitled, and I'm upset about it. Right? Like, there's things in me that I still, when I look in the mirror, I think, golly, Lord, I I just thought I'd be farther from this than I am right now. I... I see the brokenness inside of my own heart and I think, Lord, change me. Transform me into your image. I want to be farther along. And so I don't think that we just have to look outside there. I think it's fair that we can look inside here and say, Lord, we're hungry to be transformed. We want to look different. I want to experience that 2 Corinthians 3, 18 transformation that Paul talks about, that when I behold the glory of God, I'm transformed from one degree of glory to the next. He promises that he's going to make all things new, that he's going to transform me into the image of Christ, and I'm hungry for that day. I'm hungry to not be quick to anger. 
I'm hungry to be slow to speak. I'm hungry, hungry to have the joy of Christ, the peace of Christ, all those things. I'm hungry, and I hope you are as well. And so what I want to encourage you on this morning is that the arrival of Jesus makes God's promise all of those years ago not only real but true for you and for me even in this room, that that hunger that you have to be different, to be transformed, he makes that real and true and available to you and to me. In fact, this morning, I think Paul does a beautiful job recording the implications of Jesus' arrival for you and for me. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, I'm just going to read this because he just summarizes it so well. I can't do it any better, so I'm just going to read it. Here's what Paul says in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So we're talking Gentiles and we're talking Jews here, okay? That's who he's speaking of. Which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. I want you to highlight. If you highlight in your Bible or whatever it is that you do or you underline or circle, circle that word, separate. He says, we are separated from Christ. Alienated, circle that word. We were alienated. That means we are foreigners. From the commonwealth of Israel, the fellowship, the community, the family of Israel, we were separated. We were alienated, Paul says. He says that we were strangers. That's another word. Circle that one. We're strangers to the covenant of promise. And here's the results of that. We have no hope. And we were without God in the world. It means we were separated from God. Just think about that for a minute. What would life be like if you were separated from God? Separated from him. But now... Some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Wow, note that. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are, hear this, fellow citizens with the saints. And get this, members of the household of God. Keep in mind In this passage, Paul is speaking to a non-Jewish audience, speaking to the Ephesians. And what that means is that they are not heirs of Abraham, and they're not heirs of the promise that God has given to Abraham. That's why Paul says that you were strangers, that you were aliens, that you were cut off from the promises of God. Which, by the way, unless you're of Jewish descent and you're sitting here in this room, that applies to you. 
that applies to me in this room. We are the Gentiles. We are the people that Paul is talking about here that says has no hope and are completely without God in the world, that we were cut off from him. And in fact, if you would go up into chapter two, you would see that we are his enemies. Paul doesn't mince words here. He just tells you like it is. And he, he says, literally, you are an enemy, a child of wrath. That means you were not playing on the God's team. You're playing against him in your rebellion. That's what Paul is saying here. But God. But God. Keep in mind that when Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he literally means you were dead spiritually, you were just like Israel living under Assyrian rule. There is nothing that you can do to get yourself out of captivity. You are helpless and you are hopeless. This morning, if you have not given your heart to Jesus and chosen to follow him, you are hopeless. You are cut off from the promises of God. This is you right now. We're speaking of right here. But God... In his plan of redemption, he planned it in such a way that through Jesus, salvation would not be offered just to Abraham's descendants, but it would be offered to the whole world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. Will not perish, but have everlasting life. Only God could offer a salvation such as this. And so Jesus, or I'm sorry, God sends Jesus to this earth in the helpless form of a baby to grow up amongst people who are living in rebellion against him and rebellion against his father and he would preach to them and he would teach them and he would show them the way. And yet over and over and over again, they would rebuke him. They would turn away from him. And he goes to the cross so that the father would turn away from him. We pay for our sin so he could look to you and me and offer us a salvation that Isaiah says is mountain moving, land leveling, and life altering. Now, here's the implications of this kind of salvation. There's three implications, real quick. The first one is peace with God. The reason why we celebrate the season of Jesus' arrival is because when we give our hearts to Him, He offers us a peace with our Creator. See, we may not be descendants of Abraham, but the reality is, is we are not much different than them either. In fact, much of their story, we kind of parallel with it, right? We, what we all share in common, both Jews and Gentiles alike, is that we were all created in God's image with value and dignity and insignificant worth. We were all created. That's a leveling playing field that all of us play from. 
He created us all to live and to work and to play in partnership with him. Perfect relationship, perfect friendship, to walk with him, to dine with him, to enjoy him. That's how God created the whole world to be. For us to be in perfect harmony with him. However, rather than following him, we chose to go our own way. The consequences of this decision are that God has given us over to our own desires. And the reality is, is that we are now stuck living in this broken world, in this broken body that constantly fails me. Right? Stuck in this world of news and just ugh and filth all the way around me. And I think, again, if we're honest, we could say this morning, we don't like living in a broken world. Anybody like living in a broken world? You enjoying the brokenness of the world right now? You enjoying your brokenness? No. And so here's what we do. We all do this, right? We try to get ourselves out of the mess that we find ourselves in. And so we look to things like work. And man, if I just work a little bit more, if I make a little bit more, more money, Maybe then I'll get me out of this mess, right? If I go on a vacation, then I'll escape the brokenness and the, the burnout that I'm experiencing. Maybe if I just get married, oh, if I get married, that'll solve my problems. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Hey, well, what if I had a child? Maybe if I have a child, that's gonna solve the brokenness in my life. You know how many times I've heard that? How many times I've heard and if I just get married or, golly, if I just make a certain amount of money, if I just arrive at this a level of success, and man, we could go on and on of all the different ways that we try to get ourselves out of the brokenness that we find ourselves in, and yet just like quicksand, just like a bungee cord, boy, we, we stretch it and it just rips us right back to where we were. And so then we move to things like drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other addictions, thinking that, man, if I can just numb it, maybe I, if I just numb this junk that I'm living in, maybe then I'll, I'll arrive at that, that peace that I'm looking for. And yet we never arrive there, do we? Because what your heart longs for the most, hear me, this is so important, what your heart longs for the most is not the amount of presents or, that are under your tree, what your heart longs for the most is to have peace with the one who created you. What your human heart was created for is to enjoy the person who knit you together in your mother's womb, who says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made that that is your purpose, is to enjoy him, to have peace with him. It's to recognize that you've lived in rebellion and, and we continue to kind of rebel against him. Whether we realize it or not, even moralism can oftentimes be a rebellion against God because we try to work for our salvation. When he says, no, 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 you're done. You don't have to work for me. You don't have to work for my love. And I've proven that in the person and the work of Jesus. He came and lived the perfect, moral, upright, righteous life on your behalf so that you would not have to, that you would give your heart to me and then I would change your heart and that I would begin to transform you from the inside out and the more you love me and the more you follow me, the more you'll experience the righteousness that I have for you in Christ. But that begins with peace 
with God. You have to be reconciled with Him, and you can't be reconciled with Him if you don't recognize that there's a problem in you that needs to be fixed, that you cannot fix, that only He can fix, and He has done that with the arrival of Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection for you. Wow. Peace with God. The second thing is peace within ourselves. See, the overflow of peace with God allows us to have peace within ourselves. Now, there's two aspects to this. The first side of peace within ourselves, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of strange. What does he mean by peace within myself? Well, here's what I mean, right? Because of Jesus' arrival, I no longer have to strive for my salvation. Like, I no longer have to work for that, right? Like, I can stand in the righteousness of Christ, and so I recognize that God did not accept me because of the work that I do for him, but because of the work that Christ has done on my behalf. So now I can stand in his righteousness, and my identity can be rooted in him, not in what I have to bring to him or to offer to him, but I can just simply stand in the righteousness of Christ knowing that even at my worst, he died for me. What am I best? I'm at absolute worst. And so I can receive his forgiveness, which then means if, if, if I can receive his forgiveness and if he can forgive me, then surely I can forgive myself. You tracking with me? And so that I can stand in that forgiveness. And so I don't have to flirt with this line of, of, of striving and working, I can just stand in the forgiveness that he's given to me. And by the way, when you do that, I promise you, it, it leads you back to him. I've always heard that a mature Christian, when they fall into sin, you know that they're growing in their maturity by whether or not they either run to, run to Christ for their forgiveness or do they run to something else seeking some kind of peace outside of, of him. So I can have peace within myself. The, the second side of that, and, 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 and I don't want to make a general statement here because I don't think that's helpful for anybody, but I do think that our culture, and probably many of you deal with this and struggle with this, um, but I think all too often we're attempting to present ourselves as better than what we really are. Right? Like, I, I look at social media, I look at Facebook pages, I look at Instagram, I look at all kinds of stuff, and I think, golly, man, we are trying to present ourselves as being something so much better than what we actually are. And the reason why we do that is because when we look in the mirror, we just don't really like what we see. But hear me. Christ didn't die for the you that you portray to others. He died for the real you the broken you, the struggling you, the you that doesn't have it all together. He sees through the mask that you and I portray for the world to see and says, hey, I see you. I gave my son for you, for the real you, and I love you. You may not love yourself, but man, I love you. And so we no longer have to pretend. We no longer have to live under the fear of being found out. Because God loves the real, authentic, genuine you. That's great news. 
That is so refreshing. I mean, can you feel the weight lift off of your shoulder to think that God doesn't love the fake you? I I was watching this TV show. It was telling the story of this family living in like the 1950s-ish era, and the wife would go to bed later than the husband because she would take off her She'd take off her makeup after her husband went to bed. And then she would wake up before the husband got up out of bed to put on her makeup before he got out of bed. And I was struck by that. (laughs) My wife doesn't do that. (laughs) I love you, babe. I love the real you. (laughs) See that? Yep. Chips in the jar, baby. Um, but I thought, goodness gracious, do we not do that though? I mean, do we not do that? And yet, the Lord says, hey, take off that makeup. Take off the face. I see you at your worst. I chose you to be mine. Wow. Number three, we can now have peace with others. We can have peace with others. You know, Paul, when he's talking about all this, he says that through Jesus, God is creating one new race out of the two. He says we can have peace. We're no longer Jew and Gentile, right? We can be a multi-generational, multi-racial, all kinds of people all together under one roof, and we can be united with all of our differences, with our different stories, different backup backgrounds, different cultures. I mean, oh my goodness, all of the things. And God has united us through the blood of Jesus. <laughs> that is wild. I can't even imagine when Paul is writing this to, the, to, to a, a Gentile audience, they're like, you've got to be kidding me. With the Jews, they hate us. And to the Jews, they're going, we hate them. And you're saying that we're now one and that we're going to dine together at the same table in a family? You're kidding me. And yet, that's what Jesus has come to the earth to do. To bring unity in our greatest moments of division. So that we can dine even with our enemies. That is wild. Can you imagine after Paul was saved, when Paul shows up to the disciples And he knocks on the door and knowing what he's done, which by the way, he was uh, signing off on the killing of tons of early Christians and he's knocking on their door and and are they just going to open the door? Would you? And yet they open the door. They embrace their brother. Once an enemy, now a brother. That's the power of Jesus' arrival in your life and in my life. And even for Baptists, that means that we can agree to disagree and we don't have to take it personal. Isn't that great news? That's great news that because Jesus walked across the room and said, hey, I'm here to bring peace and unity Because he did that, so can we. We can walk across the room and we can forgive somebody who hurt us. And we can ask for forgiveness for those in whom we have hurt. And we can be unified. Paul says that God has destroyed, destroyed the hostility that we have between 
God and between man. What unites us is the blood of Jesus. And praise be to God that we can have peace. So here's how I bring all this back together, right? So as we consider the Christmas story, we consider the prophecy that Isaiah gave to us all those years ago, a coming Savior who's going to come to the earth and he's going to ransom and he's going to rescue a rebellious people in a broken world. This morning, we need to recognize that we are that rebellious people living in a broken world with no hope and without God. But God, God came to this earth in the person of Jesus to give his life for you and for me that we might have forgiveness of sin, but it doesn't end there. Not only did he offer you forgiveness of sin, but he also offered you a way back to God. That means that you and I can now have friendship with the God of the universe, the very one who created you and knitted you together in your mother's womb that we can partner with him in life and work and play and everywhere we go, we no longer need an intermediary, but we can go directly to him. We can walk with him, we can dine with him, we can be with him, all because Jesus is a rival. Apart from that, we had no hope. And so maybe you're in the room, maybe you in this room have never given your heart to Jesus. Well, today I would love for you to do that. I would love for you to experience this peace that we're talking about, peace with God, peace within yourselves, and and, and then peace with others. I want you to experience the peace in a chaotic world that, that, that your circumstances can't touch. Your next step is to give your life to Jesus. Experience that life-altering, mountain-moving, land-leveling kind of salvation that Isaiah talks about. For those of you in the room who have already given your heart to Jesus, but maybe you're not walking in this peace, and I just want to remind you that the peace that you're looking for is not going to be found at the end of a bottle. It's not going to be found in a paycheck or a bigger house or a spouse or a child or any of those things. The peace that your heart is looking for can only be found in him. And so my challenge to you as we look to Christmas next week is to look to him and find him to be enough for your peace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace to us that were it not for Christ, Father, we would still be separated from you. We would be alienated. We would be foreigners to the commonwealth of Israel. We would have no hope. We have no hope. And Lord, maybe there's somebody in this room who even right now is living with no hope, with no peace. God, I pray that today would be the day that they say, Lord, I want the peace that you provide, and so I'm going to take my next step, and I'm going to give my life to you. And if that's you, I hope that you would come down front at the end of the service and talk with me. I would love that opportunity to walk you through how you can have that kind of peace And if you're in the room and you're just struggling through, golly, man, I I want that peace. I I know Jesus. I know that I know that I know Jesus. But man, I I just don't have peace. I'm an anxious mess and I just need prayer. And I need to be reminded that my grades are not going to be good enough. My work is not going to be good enough. The paycheck is not going to be enough. All these things are not going to be enough to give me what my heart longs for. And so I need the peace of Christ. 
Lord, I pray that you meet with them. I pray that you transform hearts this morning. God, I do pray that we would have that peace, that we would experience peace with you. Lord, I pray that we would experience peace with ourselves, that we may live as the authentic people that you desire us to be. And Lord, I pray that we would have peace with one another, that we would have unity. And I pray for unity for the world, for our, your kingdom. I pray for unity within churches. Lord, I pray that we would actively be seeking the kingdom of God and we would join hands, uh, Father, to see your kingdom come to this earth. And Lord, we do pray, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus, establish your kingdom on this earth. Oh, may you reign forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
So I read this in my quiet time. I thought it was really helpful this morning. Um, Paul, chapter 16 of Romans, he closes his book to the Romans, and here's what he says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May you have peace and enjoy the peace of Christ this Christmas season. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. I hope to see you next week. God bless you.